0: Hello, and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's episode is with Greta Brinkman. Greta got her start playing music in the early punk and hardcore scenes of Pennsylvania and Richmond, playing with bands such as 2000 Maniacs and Unseen Force. She then went on to become a touring musician, playing bass with the Debbie Harry Band and Moby, as well as working as a studio musician in New York City. She now lives back in Richmond and plays with the band Drug Lord and makes beautiful wooden picture frames from reclaimed wood through her company, Frames by Greta. It was a pleasure to talk with Greta, and I hope you enjoy listening. This episode is split into six parts. This is part one. Enjoy.
1: My name is Greta Brinkman. I guess I'm best known in Richmond as being a bass player. Um, Came here in 1985 and started the band called Unseen Force, and then... uh, was in many bands over the years. Used to work at a place called Rockets. And moved to New York City in 1994 to play bass for Debbie Harry. Um, stayed there for 14 years. Finally gave up on being a professional musician because you cannot earn a living that way anymore. I was a session session player. Came back to Richmond. Own a house now. And uh, now I'm almost retired from playing music. I'm down to one band, which is called Drug Lord. And I've quit all my jobs to concentrate on making Picture frames out of reclaimed wood from job sites that I used to work at when I used to be a carpenter.
0: I came to know of you because of an Inquisition song mm-hmm. um, when I was like 14. You know, like I didn't, I didn't even know you were a real person until like <laughs> you know maybe like 10 or 12 years later because I'm friends with Carol and, uh-huh. and Beth. Um, but I, you know, there was a there was a song called Greta Brinkman versus City." Whoa. The what story that behind about? that is
1: that Inqui- When I used to live I live now in Oregon Hill But I used to live in a different house in Oregon Hill Inquisition used to practice in my basement I would run out the basement to My band would pray there And Inquisition would practice there For like $20 a month And uh, so we got to be friendly And Thomas is just so adorable And he always would He's like he, At the time he was this wide-eyed kid You know really And he still is really Kind of interested and excited in yeah. the world And always curious And wanting to know stuff and stories about people And so he really used to dig When I would tell them Debbie Harry stories You know and, stories about touring and stuff like that and um, so we just got to be friends and I don't know why they titled the song that way it's not the lyrics aren't about me but the name is
0: yeah I I, I never saw the correlation between and that's why I didn't know if you were like a real person or if it was Mm -hmm. just like a name you know because the lyrics didn't make any sense Yeah. Um, well that's very interesting Kind of explains and still kind of doesn't
1: (laughs) Why it's versus the city I'm not entirely sure Except that I used to have A 71 Plymouth Duster That was parked out front And I was so poor At the time That I couldn't afford To get the the tags renewed So it got towed away And I never was I never could get My car back
0: Oh wow That sucked They just took it They took it Um, They probably sold it At auction Or crushed it Or something Wow So um, The instrument You played Was it bass? Mm
1: -hmm, I've always played bass not interested in guitar, never have been. Never. Never.
0: You know, I meet so many bass players that are like that. They're just like
1: Well, I have a personal theory and it's gonna sound very blanket statementy and very gonna sound reductionist. Okay. But my personal theory is that girls in general don't have such an ego need to be the star of the show and most guys when they wanna be in a band, they will want to play guitar. Because they can be all look at me, look at me.
0: Yeah. I, I could definitely see that as the motivation. I, th- actually, that kind of was my motivation for starting to play guitar. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: <laughs> and if you ask, like, 50 guys, why did you start playing guitar? The subtext of the answer is going to be, to meet girls.
0: My actual reason was my dad gave me a choice between karate or guitar. Oh, wow. And Tough choice, here actually. here is my logic. If I become a rock star, I would get bodyguards. You don't and have girls. To do your own karate. <laughs> so, like, it's both, basically. I was like, third grade, I think.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And, uh huh. And yeah, then I got into punk, and I didn't care about the other <laughs> thing anymore. And I was like, actually, this—I probably should have learned karate. You know?
1: <laughs> well, it's not too late. You always could do it now.
0: <laughs> um, so bass—that's um—it's amazing because it's hard to play that instrument well. I mean with his little strings people are always Thank like oh you. that is so is... true
1: and it is really under underrated I think yeah I it, mean it is the simplest instrument in the in, in the sense that there's only you're only hitting one note at a time there's only four strings no big deal but to have a sense of timing and as a bass player your job is not to be flashy it's to be help the drummer create a solid foundation for the rest of the band so that everybody feels comfortable and free and the flow is just doing what it should be doing
0: well, the rhythms, yeah, the rhythm section is crucial, um, but but the bass, it's like I think of if you look, listen to, did you ever listen to like Bob Marley or anything like that? Yeah. Um, like his bass player could play so simply, like just a couple notes per thing, and just carry everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain simplicity to it, and like. Almost the same way like Miles Davis or someone like that would, um, when they were getting into like the minimalist mm-hmm. horn stuff, um, to say you know as mu- much as you could with the least amount possible. That's a hard thing to do with guitar. You're just yeah, you know, and especially in punk rock, guitar like, is a
1: million notes all the time, it, all the notes.
0: <laughs> it's 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 not that difficult to build the arrangement. But um, when did you get into playing bass?
1: I was 16 and I had run away from home, Um, but I've always been a very, very methodical, and careful person, so I didn't just one day decide to run away from home. Instead, I scouted out and rented a room in a rooming house in the town nearby, and then slowly every morning on the school bus, I was still in high school, I would move another piece of my stuff to my new room, and then finally one day I told my parents I was moving out and uh, I was going to, you know, that was that. And so somebody had left behind in this rooming house, they had left behind a bass guitar. And I didn't really know what to do with it at all, but I kept it around for a while. And then punk rock came along, and I met a couple of other punk rock per- persons. This was in a really small town in Pennsylvania, who also didn't know how to play their instruments. Um, but this was punk rock, so that was no big deal. So we all started a band. None of us really knew how to play. The guitar player had a couple of chords, and the drummer was just, he was like 15, just starting out. So we started a punk rock band called Wasted Talent. And uh, we all learned to play our instruments together. Wow. And I've never really looked back. To me, the bass is just the... I I really respect the shit out of drummers, but I could not play four different things with each different extremity like they they can do. It's amazing. So no formal training? No. Now looking back, I I personally think if you take too many lessons too soon, it could possibly... um, make your outlook a little too regimented and there's too many rules and regs about music theory and whatnot. Um, punk rock is very refreshing and healthy in that aspect. Looking back now, I kind of wish I had taken some music theory like a decade in. I would have liked to know a little bit more about, you know, sevenths and building chord structures and stuff like that. But I've been pretty successful and pretty satisfied musically just by um, you know, learning to play with punk rock and then a, when I worked as a session musician in New York City, I also played in a house band that had a different drag queen singer every week. And so we would learn five to ten new songs every week for that singer. It was like a live karaoke thing. And that was an amazing, incredible education. Just when you learn other people's songs, you really get an insight into how they write their songs and kind of a feel for the, you know, the structures that they use. Every songwriter is a little bit different. And there's people who obviously start with a riff... And then they decide later what the vocals are going to be And then there's very obviously people who come to the thing With a page full of lyrics that they want to make into a song And it's just It's fascinating to me how many Different ways there are to arrive at You know, a live band playing a song
0: Session playing with someone without formal training That's, that's pretty amazing Because a lot of the uh, session players I've met These are very School dudes? Yeah, like maybe they even had like a masters or something In music Yeah um, real unsung hero guys, amazing that some of the folks you meet that how good they were, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, How did you come into that?
1: Well, the shame and the, the misery of being in the music world is that it really is all who you know and it isn't how good you are practicing in your mom's basement if you never leave the house. So there's a whole lot of people there's millions of people who are way better than me who could read music at the drop of a hat and who can play anything in any key and transpose whatever they need to do on the on the spur of the moment and you know I can't do any of that but it's all about who i know you know i met certain people and then you know they would recommend me for other gigs and when you're first starting out you say yes to everything no matter how crappy and shitty and terrible it is mm-hmm. and eventually you get to know some people and you build up a kind of a solid network of other drummers for example or other bass players and they'll think about you when a job comes up and And somebody, you know, they need somebody who's going to be pleasant And really the secret of success is show up on time, in tune, and sober And you're pretty much halfway there already
0: And the sober part's probably a big thing It probably excludes a lot of musicians I tell you, man,
1: when I left New York for Richmond again I came back, I left there and then came back I was just, I was shocked at how drunk everybody is here Really? Yeah
0: and that concludes part one of our six-part interview with Greta. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on April 5th, 2014. Welcome back to Various Things. This is part two of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. Enjoy. So when did you move to Richmond?
1: I moved to Richmond in 1985. My second band, 2000 Maniacs, played with White Cross, which was a Richmond local band hardcore legend bass player from white cross was dewey and he and i got together and started dating and he left white cross and moved to pennsylvania where i was but we couldn't get anything started musically so we both moved down here and started unseen force and that was in 84 85
0: and what was this place in pennsylvania like
1: state college pennsylvania is a provincial little tiny shithole backwards thinking closed-minded absolutely awful place to grow up And I wasn't even from there I mean I was born overseas We came here when I was seven But it was just uh, I can't say enough terrible things About that town
0: (laughs) When you came to Richmond Did you think
1: I thought that Richmond Was a big city Did you think you'd stay here I You know I never I don't think five minutes In advance really So I don't know
0: but you' so you're stoked on it you're like, this is
1: well, nice. I was yeah, I was I mean, I was a little overwhelmed, you know i I thought, oh, Richmond is so big, and all these you know so many bands, and it's still true that Richmond has a disproportionately large amount of bands, not enough places to play. Um, my first impressions of Richmond though when I was a kid, the first time I came down here was you know that a big punk rock scene, and I was pretty intimidated and impressed by all the local bands and stuff. And then when I moved to New York and then came back, there was was like a slap in the face about... Because New York City, the level of professionalism, as you can imagine, is through the roof. Mm -hmm. Everybody is there as their career. They're very single-minded. They're constantly thinking about, you know, the next career move that they're going to have. And I came back here and it was kind of a shock to be back in kind of a backwater, except that the musicianship level here is also very high. There are some incredible musicians here.
0: The thing I've noticed about Richmond is the people who tend to succeed here. You could probably drop them off in Antarctica, and they would succeed here. True. Um, but yeah, every everyone I've met that's a musician here, they're really they're just kind of like in their own world. that, that is really just like doing a lot of stuff, and um, and it's 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 kind of weird because if you read uh, like things like RBA Mag now, you discover so many like that are still like that, mm-hmm. and there's just these little like microcosms of people here in this town. That you, you just, you know, if you walked around and, you know, talked yeah, to folks, you might yeah. not ever discover. Folks. I just
1: had this conversation this morning with some people at the craft fair. They're like, there's so many amazing craft makers of things here, but nobody seems to really network with anybody else because everybody's busy incubating in their own little studio.
0: I wonder if that's because of. Just bad experiences networking in the past, you know. I think
1: that artists have a certain personality, yeah. And that personality is not necessarily out there blowing their own horn, glad handing everyone, kissing babies. You know, artists tend to be solitary, and musicians too. A lot of them, you know, the really creative ones are. They usually have. Depression issues Or some other Kind of mental issues And it's hard for them To interact with the public And it's disgusting To feel like you have to If your band wants To get anywhere You have to have a You know A business degree And a manager And so That shouldn't be the case You should be able To make your art And have it be uh, res, You know Received by the world In a respectful way But that's simply Just not how it works America in general Doesn't care about music It's a, it's a very different Scene in Europe though
0: It's a, it's a commodity Yeah
1: exactly situation. Exactly
0: Um do you think in New York, it's the same thing for artists? But Very much. It... Times
1: 10. It's much more career-oriented even okay. than, there, than here. Weird. Yeah, there's very little... New York City, especially now, Is there's just no room for creativity and art. Wow. To be able to be creative and make art, you need to be able to afford to have to live and maybe even afford to pay for your studio, and that's not happening in New York anymore. So I guess it was... 85 was when you first moved down here? Correct. And I was way young and really poor and working at this nightclub called Rockets, which used to be Casablanca, later became the metro and is now empire. Um, And Richmond at the time was... I still think this is true. Richmond is very oppressive if you're very poor and you can't leave. You get very much caught in your little rut, of, especially when people drink, which I don't really drink and I never have, but I've seen people do it. They just they're bored so they drink so because they're drunk they don't get anything done so their life isn't that exciting so they're bored and that's you know repeat cycle yeah rinse and repeat as necessary and so i found that richmond was i felt very trapped in richmond but now that i'm older and i have you know uh i have a career behind me in some world travel and i actually own my house which is fantastic i feel much better about richmond i feel that it's a good place to use as your home base but i wouldn't depend on richmond for any kind of Real artistic satisfaction Do you think it ever could get there? I feel like there's so much Richmond makes so many false starts And every time shoots itself in the foot Every time I've been waiting Almost, you know, I've been waiting my whole Practically half my life for City Hall The people in City Hall, the idiots in City Hall To die off and be replaced by A group of progressive people who would actually Support local artists and small businesses still not happening still not going to happen it's still fine and tax everyone out of existence till any artist that happens to come out of vcu gives up and leaves town in disgust
0: being in college a little bit i noticed how many of the students are like i can't wait to get out of here yeah and it sucks because i don't think a lot of them
1: it's horrible it's a hotbed of i mean vcu is a lot more corporate than it used to be too but there's still real artists there and there's real creativity and these people have no outlet
0: it, it, yeah, I think Richmond the, the, doesn't support. They must have like a little garden that they grow city leaders in or something. I want yes, because <laughs> they're all the
1: same. Yeah, and it's so sad. Somebody wrote, somebody was on the internet and they wrote, they made a little mock-up map of what a light rail system in Richmond would look like if Richmond was like a real city, like Berlin or something. And it t- totally made sense and it was absolutely reasonable. And then I thought to myself, this is great. You know what? It's never going to happen in my lifetime. Well, you,
0: they they could build it. They're really good at. Building thing. Usually, the thing has to be senseless, though.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: But like, you remember Sixth Street Marketplace? Oh yes. Remember Main Street Station? Yes.
1: Yeah. So I now mean, the whole ballpark fiasco. Yeah. It, Nightmare. Center stage too. I a a should of show our them my
0: calendar and show them that there's like days that come after the completion of the project, right. and maybe pay attention a little bit to to that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So you went to New York after coming here initially. Hmm. Why'd you go there?
1: Um, Unseen Force, which start which we okay, so we all moved down here in 1985. Started Unseen Force, thanks to Dewey, who later became a Guar member. Um, and Unseen Force did one album and made one American tour, which is pretty typical. Bands usually put out an album, do one tour, and then break up for one reason or another. So we were in Kansas, and Chris Stein, the guitar player from Blondie, happened to be at our show because even though he was a little older he's also very interested and very curious about life and he's always wants to know what the kids are doing you know and he's interested in if he goes to visit somewhere he's curious about the local scene and what's going on so he came to our little punk rock show in the middle of nowhere in the cornfield and we got to be friends and so we would talk on the phone a couple times a year and in 1994 we were talking on the phone and the, the usual stuff and and he said, "Oh yeah, well the Debbie Harry band is going to go to England, but we don't have a bass player. I don't really know what we're going to do." And you know, kind of jokingly, I said, "Oh, ha, ha I could be there next week if you want." And then he was like, "Oh, you know, I never thought of that. When can you be here, honestly?" And so that's how I became Debbie Harry's bass player.
0: Wow. So ninety four, did she stop playing for a while, or she had been playing the whole time? She had
1: been she, Debbie. She's a goddess. Okay, Blondie had broken up. Um, they lost their record. They got done by their record label. It was a huge legal fiasco. They, They went through court for years to even get a fraction of what they were owed. Um, But Debbie has always continued working either solo or, you know, with other people. She's always, like, she's flying to Rome to be in a fashion show or she's going upstate to be in a movie. So she had a solo career, the Debbie-Harry band, for a while in between the times when Blondie was broken up and when they got back together. So I was the bass player during that time.
0: And that concludes part two of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on April 5th, 2014. Welcome back to Various Things. This is part three of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. Enjoy. So when you went up to New York, how long were you up there for?
1: Well, I was actually only in the Debbie Band for about a year, um... Because the band itself wasn't real... Debbie, personally, is very busy all the time, but the band itself wasn't super productive and busy. I was kind of thinking we were going to, you know, maybe make records and go on tours, but we didn't do a whole lot of... We did two weeks in England and two weeks in the States. And Debbie was so kind to let me stay at her house, which was amazing. Um, But then while I was... I figured while I was up there, I'll go ahead and, you know, try to start a career. You know, it's... Being Debbie Harry's bass player is a pretty big leg up. It's much better than zero, so I uh, couch surfed for two years before I could find an apartment. It was gruesome, brutal. And it just started, like I already explained to you, just kind of saying yes to everything and slowly meeting people, you know, and becoming better known. And it was exhausting, and I, I would never do it again, but I'm really glad to have done it. It was an amazing experience.
0: How old were you? in really? uh, You don't have to tell uh, me. How but... old was I? 33? Doing that at 33 Like I was 31 31 32 31 Yeah I always thought of the 30s As like when you stop Giving that extra Whatever Per se Yeah percent. well
1: No wow. wow Actually Blondie When Blondie got big Debbie was already in her 30s Wow So she was already A full grown adult When that whole thing happened
0: I just look on like When I was like 19 And I'd like Take an internship Somewhere And like Yeah 16 hour days Sure why right. not You get to be like 30 And just kind of like
1: well, you know, if you don't drink and you don't party and, you know, clean living goes a long way. I've never been a high energy person, but I do have, I can go for long periods of low energy. <laughs> so my stamina good, just my energy levels are kind of low.
0: That's like a deep cycle battery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so did you kind of get, like, attached to a studio and being a. Um
1: no session player um,
0: or producer? The or? type
1: of session person I kinda was attached to a studio. I did play I did work with um a, a guy who owned a studio called Dessau Studios, which Sonic Youth recorded at and That's, the Beastie yeah, Boys.
0: That sounded familiar. Yeah, okay. I, did, I think
1: the Beastie Boys might have named did Sonic Youth name their EP Dessau? Someone did. Or Beastie Boys named their EP Dessau. Anyway. Some a couple of bands. So I did work with him, but mostly I got gigs just by well this The nightclub that I told you about where I was in the house band and we played with a different drag queen singer every week I would get a lot of gigs from that people would see me on stage and then they would come out afterwards at the time there was still a record industry and there were still people doing showcases so very commonly I would get hired um, because a singer songwriter wanted to present their songs to a record company but they needed a band but they didn't want to have a whole band all the time so it's very it was very common then to just hire a band for the night basically you would have they would give you a tape. You would learn the songs. You would have a rehearsal, maybe two, and then you would put on a little tiny, kind of a fake show at a rehearsal studio, or even like someone would rent, rent a soundstage. Yes, exactly. So I did a pretty good amount of that.
0: So speaking of the record industry, what do you think about it just falling apart?
1: I think it's a long time coming, and, and they've they've got a, they deserve every bit of failure. <laughs> record companies for years have been nothing but just leeches, yeah. and you know. I'm not even complaining. I'm not even bitter. The, uh, you know, Pro Tools and Internet killed my killed my career. It's certainly true. It took me a couple of years to realize those days were over. They were not coming back. But the, the fact is, fact of the matter is technology advances. Information wants to be free, and it's going to be free no matter how many lockdowns you try to put on it, Lars Ulrich. And the best thing you can do is deal just... I try to look every day as though I was an alien dropped from another planet onto this earth right this second in this moment. What is going on around you right now? What do you think the the future trends are going to be? Deal with the reality as it is this second and go forward with that. I know so many people who are so interested in just wallowing and bitching about the past and how great things used to be. And you know, newsflash, things weren't really that great. (laughs) The average musician was still being shit on and overlooked and unappreciated.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look in terms of what the average artist can get now per dollar on a sale of a record, it's a lot more than they could before.
1: If you're a smaller artist, yes. Bigger what? artists are suffering. Oh, yeah. Really? They were the ones who did used to make actual money when people would actually physically buy their records, right. and now they don't.
0: Well, now they're trying to do all that like weird like 360 deals where they like just take a percentage on your whole entire life. Like, yes. Oh, you're going to sell a t-shirt? We want that. and
1: I know, it's disgusting, but you can really see that coming. You know, the, but
0: it's it's weird, because talking about from your alien perspective of being dropped down and, you know, onto Earth, there's really, like, two, maybe, at least that I can come up with, two sides to music. One is the entertainment industry, and and one is music. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes they're in the same box, um, like some, you know, like a... Uh, some band is You know They go on tour They put on a good show And
1: right. you know Somebody like uh, Maybe Pearl Jam
0: Or something like that Or like Nine Inch Nails You know yeah, like A lot yeah. of theatrics And uh-huh. you know But
1: people actually Do listen to the records And right. emotionally It means something to them
0: Right And then there's other ones That are like Just There's There's no Entertainment really Aspect to mm-hmm. it really I mean and I'm thinking Maybe more of I think jazz Would be a great example Of this mm. Probably nothing more Boring to watch Right Than a bunch of guys
1: just, No there is Something more boring what? It's guys playing Their laptops Oh, okay,
0: yeah, yeah, that, that, that. I don't think anyone's watching that person, you know. You know, they're kind of, like, talking with each other or whatever. But, um...
1: Yeah, like, like, You're right, and then on the other end of the spectrum is a show like, for example, Lady Gaga, um, with very cleverly made songs that don't really have very much emotional impact at all, but the show is fantastic to watch and Right, really entertaining.
0: And I think those folks will do okay in that traditional model still, because... You know, like the like the thing I've heard is, if you're making music, you just need to tour all the time now, and it's like true. that's yeah. how you'll make money.
1: Yep, because it's, it's still a little do- harder to down- download a shirt off the internet, <laughs> or
0: an experience. You know, yeah. and even buying the shirt at the show. You know, like that's the thing. <laughs> you know, like um, but from that split side of it, the music aspect of it, personally, I, I think it's great because. I mean, like, the filter's gone. You know, like, the gatekeeper is gone, so now you have to wade through...
1: That is the new problem, is this everything. giant tidal wave of terrible, terrible crap. Yeah. And, and, so now we're back to listening to our friends' for suggestions. Yeah. You know, or recommendations, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. And
0: somehow, though, I, I hope we can avoid everyone getting their CDs put out by corporations mm-hmm. somehow. Like, you know, like the Starbucks-sponsored... yes. Like, that's just... I don't know.
1: I don't think we have to worry about that anymore, really. Anybody that wants to put out their record can slap their little EP up on Bandcamp and away you go.
0: Yeah. So, you did that in New York, playing Sessions.
1: And then in 1999, I got... uh, Moby, who was at the time an electronic artist who with a very respectable career. He would sell about 10,000 records every time he put one out. Um, He was going to go on a little six-week tour of the States on his latest record. And um, his bass player at the time was a friend of mine. Again, it's who you know. Um, and bass player, who's Ali McMorty from Stiff Little Fingers, the bass player from Stiff Little Fingers. Oh, wow. Allie had moved. He's got his own story to tell. He had moved to New York and was now working as Moby's tour manager and bass player. So a lot of work for him. If you do touring at all, you'll understand that the tour manager works pretty much 23 hours a day, and then... He has the one hour off while the band is playing to relax for a second, and then he got to go. But now Allie was doing that, plus playing in the band, so he got no rec- no rest at all. So he was kind of tired of being the bass player, and so he put me up for the job. And Moby had seen me play already in this drag queen band that I mentioned, so I didn't really have to audition. I just went over to his house, and we chatted about stuff for a little bit. And um, then I got a call from his management going, uh, we're going to play the david letterman show would you like to be would you be interested in being part of that and i was like mm, let me think yes so we did the david letterman show and that was really overwhelming and fantastic and then they were like well we're going on a little six-week tour of the states would you you know would that fit your schedule and i was like mm, yeah sure yeah let's make that happen that sounds great so our very first gig was at woodstock 99 oh wow um, that famous one where the corn fans tore down the scaffolding and shit was lit on fire and people knocked over the atms and we didn't really see any of that Because we were Out of there But then So, so we went on the six week tour While we were on the tour That record of his Absolutely exploded
0: Was this the uh... This was play. Oh okay it's... This
1: was the one Where wow. you could not even Walk past a shoe store Without hearing Some One song So Moby
0: really there. hadn't Become Moby You you're seeing Moby Become Moby at this point
1: Exactly It was Really Shocking And amazing How quickly things Took off
0: And that concludes part three of our six-part interview with Greta. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on April 5th, 2014. welcome back to Various Things. This is part four of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. Enjoy.
1: so we did the tour and then as we were winding up now it turned out that we had needed to fly to England because now the records popular in England so we went to England did some shows then we had to fly back to the states and play a different tour but bigger venues this time now because more people were into the record and buying tickets and then as we were on that it turned out oh now we need to go to Australia the record's taking off over there so we went to Australia and then we went to Europe and then we went to you know back to the states and did this festival thing with Bush and then and then we're at Coachella and we're opening for blah 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 and then we're playing and the high point of the whole thing was we opened for u2 in dublin at this famous castle where they where they play um and it was just like i signed up for six weeks right the thing went on for three and a half years (laughs) wow it was incredible i was so so tired
0: would you have done it if you had known when you were signing up for six weeks that it was going to be three and a half i would have yeah yeah
1: yeah because it was an amazing adventure i wish i was a little more prepared But it turns out that the way life is, you're never really prepared for anything. And pretty much, if something happens, you're just going to be dumped in the deep end. Yeah. And you just have to deal.
0: What is being on tour for that long like?
1: It is mentally and physically exhausting. And I was only the musician. You know, the musicians actually have it really easy. The guys that actually do the work is the road crew. They get there at 9 a.m., start setting up the stage and all the lights all day long. Then the band comes swanning in, you know, and does their 90-minute or two-hour set. And then they go back to whatever they're doing And then the road crew works and breaks down everything Until like 2 in the morning
0: And do you have the same road crew the whole tour? Mm -hmm. Oh wow
1: Yeah we had uh, This was the very tail end of record labels So they still had money to um, There was I think One entire Mack truck trailer Of just the band gear And two entire Mack truck trailers Of stage and lighting And sound Other sound gear and there was like, you know, IntelliBeam lights, each one of, they were rented and each one cost more per week than I did. You know, and there was like 12 of them and a whole entire crew, a whole bus full of crew, like 12 guys to set stuff up and, and break it down. And it was incredible how often it went right and how seldom it went wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I've known some folks that do that, the stage stagehanding yeah. stuff. yeah. Know? Yeah, they're... those
1: guys really earn their pay.
0: Yeah, they also get paid pretty good. Yes, they do. And they
1: deserve
0: it. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely.
1: Because you can you can lose a finger very easily.
0: They or, seem to or be worse. very organized. Like like I was talking to a friend of mine. and They're like, yeah, we kind of rely on the mass of the guys rather than make some one dude lift this one thing. Right. Like they're smart workers. Yeah, you teamwork. Know? So wow. So what did what did you do after all that?
1: Well, the tour was continuing to go on, and it was now three years later, and I was beyond. Ex- I mean. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't like uninterrupted three there we 'd have a couple weeks off or a month off or even a couple of months off, but then we'd be going up back on the road and it got to the point where I just felt really lonely because I have a very specific life history and upbringing. like I live like a rock and roll person except that I barely drink, so one half of the banded crew would be party animals. Which is pretty common But I had nothing in common with them And I didn't feel like getting drunk until 5am And then the other half of the band was These very sweet uh, Christian girls And they were lovely But I didn't really have too much in common with them either So it was very isolating for me To be on the road all the time And not really making any friends And finally I just reached a point where I was like This is just enough And my quality of life is really suffering And I feel not, I'm not even excited to be doing this thing anymore So it's time to quit so I, I did that.
0: Did you uh, get paid well?
1: I did. Um, you would think that it's a lot of money, but when you think about it, you're actually on call 24 hours a day, and so you don't have your own life. I think I started off at like I don't remember like five or seven hundred a week, um, and then I ended up by the time I was done, I think I was making sixteen hundred a week, which sounds like a huge amount. Like I said, but you know, it's like all you can do. That's I'm true. not saying don't do it. It's absolutely yeah. worth it. But there came a point that I had enough money in the bank. And then my quality of life, I just wanted my life back. So right. That was that.
0: That was the so, me. So where'd you go from there? Uh,
1: I went... I just took a few months off, and then I stayed around New York City and tried to kind of pick up the pieces of my old life. But things had... Time had come and gone, and Pro Tools was happening, and the record labels were collapsing. So it took me a couple of years to realize, actually, that my old career wasn't going to come back. Um, the gigs were fewer than they were. There was now a whole new crop of younger people that were really desperate to get them, and they would undercut you for pay. So I was making the same amount that I had made a decade before, um, but working a lot harder for it. And it became that became not worth it. So then, and by now I had I owned my house in Richmond for a while, even though I wasn't living in it. And so I was like, you know, alls to this, I'm really over it. I'm just going to go back to Richmond.
0: You've said a couple times, pro tools.
1: Yes. How did that eliminate? Um, as a session musician, okay, Pro Tools came along. All of a sudden, every artist thinks that they don't need a band because they have a whole band in their laptop.
0: That makes sense. Um, yeah, it's Sometimes a lot easier. Sometimes it's true, to make but a... a lot of
1: the time, it's it really was not an asset to a lot of people because they, if you're only one person and it's only your ideas, then they're, you're going to miss out on a lot of potential.
0: Me and my friend were just talking about that actually because we both do our own music but we've both also worked with bands Mm -hmm. and we were talking about how much richer the music can be when you're working with other people
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and also how much how you don't write the same kind of songs (laughs) like like you end up in like completely different musical places yes i think if you're a musician you should definitely try and play with other people because it's
1: it's very frustrating and everything getting everyone to show up on time it's really it's rewarding that
0: is probably the only downside yeah that's what we we basically described is like scheduling sucks Uh so we'll make records at home yeah Um, yeah and I think that gets harder as you get older because people get with more commitments and stuff and people aren't really as like open I think to be like I'll drop what I'm doing right now and come over to your house and
1: Yes, but on the flip side of that, people that are grown up but are still into music are more likely to be showing up on time and paying their their rehearsal space rent on time. This is
0: true. That's true. I think maybe it's just I don't know. Maybe it has to do with the priority levels of the people I'm Mm. operating or have been operating with. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you get your weekend warriors who still enjoy playing, but they have to slot it in between, you know, the kids' summer camp and whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky now to be in a band with other grown-ups. They're both married with kids, but we absolutely reliably practice twice a week.
0: What band is on that? Our fully, and Drug Lord. Okay.
1: And on our practice space is fully paid for, you know, we pay it on time. and So it's just about the level of commitment that I desire and I'm comfortable with.
0: And that concludes part four of our six-part interview with Greta. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is conducted on April 5th, 2014. Welcome back to Various Things. This is part five of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. Enjoy. I kind of want to ask a broad question, I guess. What is punk to you?
1: At the time, and remember that I was alive already when Sid Vicious was still alive. Okay. Um... Punk was a fantastic—the the kernels of it, for me, were just a realization that you really could make your own fun, and you didn't have to rely on somebody selling it to you. Um, in this town where I was, there was you know, maybe 15 of us little punky wavers, and we would all hang around together and, you know, tear up our clothes and put, safe, put it back together with safety pins and walk around town looking all scary and um, making our own bands— And so, and it was kind of, it was very refreshing and nice to realize that uh, you didn't really have to play by by anybody's rules and you could just make whatever you wanted to make. Um, And that was great and it went on for quite a while. For, you know, several years there was not really that much of a dress code and different types of music were quite acceptable, like you could have a saxophone in your punk rock band, you know, Um, only later did it become really codified, like uniform, and the Dress code was extremely rigid, and people were excluded. Um, so it was it was fun and exciting for a little while there.
0: You're not interested in it now. Or? Oh, I still am. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you consider yourself like a punk?
1: Sure. Okay. Like I consider myself a feminist. It's just a, you know, a feminist is just somebody who believes in equal pay for equal work. What do you?
0: Th- why do you think it, co- it codified like that into, into that rigidness?
1: I think that humans in general really crave structure and having someone tell them what to do even in bunk. even in oh. <laughs> which yeah. is not
0: really supposed to be i mean you that. know
1: it's like being president of the anarchy club
0: <laughs> that's a great way to put it wow and so like uh something that i've been coming up talking with people is um how like after green day it really and, and well maybe even more after blink 182 But punk became a pretty accepted genre, Mm -hmm. and it's to the point now where, like, some of my friends and I—we meet folks that listen to it avidly as a genre, but have no interest
1: in the social aspect.
0: Yeah, in the in the ethic aspect of it, Uh I guess. Um, And it's been weird because simultaneously, someone that might come into it as a genre might end up in the ethic part of it Uh, like a friend was mentioning that these folks had gotten into punk maybe on Blink-182 or something like this and now they're at a house show Mm -hmm. and so that's like beneficial for the ethic side Mm of it Mm -hmm. Um, but the genre is a little scary because it I think in some minds it reduces the ethic part of it to other people or something so they might not know that that putting your stuff out yourself and this kind of thing was part of it Uh And you can still kind of do it, you know Like like I think that's like the The only reason I really got into punk was because It sounded really awesome and I could put My records out Mm -hmm. and do it myself But it was like equal parts of that You know what I mean? Yeah And I I wonder if if like maybe it's becoming more of like a Just a genre um, If that kind of like
1: Well anything No matter how extreme is eventually going to be watered down In order for it to be acceptable to the masses Yeah um, you know, now maybe we would have the same ethic, but maybe we would just put a different label on it. Maybe now that the label would be DIY or um, I don't know. I think people have
0: been do- that's alternative shit. or yeah. something. You know? Yeah, I think I've, like you have seen more documentaries coming out talking about like the DIY ethic instead yeah. of like just saying punk, you yeah. know, or whatever. Um,
1: maybe punk was maybe punk was just a certain you know certain movement at a certain time, and maybe it doesn't really exist like that anymore. But maybe the ethics continue on in just different forms
0: thinking about that I, I try to think of things before it where the ethics were and there never really seemed to be that strong of a movement before it that was that focused on doing it yourself. Like I I think the hippies
1: actually Right. At the dawning of the hippie age, I think that there was I don't I'm not old enough for that, but yeah. To my understanding there was people wanting to get off the grid, you know, make their own clothes, grow their own food and depend on dump to depend on Outside oil sources And this kind of thing Right And of course that I'm sure was very deep And meaningful to the people Involved at the time But like anything else It got watered down And commodified Right And sold So now you could buy Some bell bottoms In Kmart
0: <sighs> Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah That's gonna happen So
1: I guess maybe What we're getting at Is that we don't have To rely that much On labels Maybe it's less about labels Than it is just about uh, I don't know Attitude what has
0: been overall your, your motivation in playing music?
1: Well, it's actually, to be bra- brutally honest, punk and hardcore are not that interesting to me musically, especially as a bass player. As you can imagine, it's like playing polka music. But I really loved the whole putting together your own record, meeting people, at other bands, and having fun, having a place to stay in other towns, making your own tour. That part has always really appealed to me, and, and also the social aspect. It's nice to have a little group of people that are your friends that you do stuff with. you know. Um, so to me, it's been social as well as musical.
0: Are you artistic outside of music? Do you have any other things that you...
1: I went to school for graphic design, and I was extremely average. Oh, wow. So I'm not, I'm not a wildly creative person. I'm much more practical, and that's probably why I'm a good bass player. Um, And I also now make picture frames out of reclaimed wood, and that's a way of turning and being practical, yet also useful and beautiful, I think.
0: Would you consider yourself, like, a utilitarian? Yes. Okay.
1: I'm always interested in, like, anything, I see something that is engineered, and I'll be thinking, what would be a better way to do that, make it more functional, and make it work better?
0: Wow. So maybe in, like, a different life you could have been, like, a...
1: I would have made a great, I don't know, city planner or, you know, urban engineer or something like that.
0: What are your critiques of uh, those things in, in this city? What's something that just sticks out that they could have done so don't much even better? do even started.
1: Richmond, <laughs> Richmond schools and roads are a national embarrassment.
0: Their roads are horrible it's You know what's un- even worse Than their roads though Their sidewalks
1: Like they can't You are not wrong
0: They can't keep A sidewalk together To I know, save their lives I know. And it's
1: not that hard I know Other I'm, cities I've been to other cities European cities Hundreds of years old Managed to make Their cobblestones smoother Even than our Baltimore sidewalks.
0: Has better sidewalks yeah. You know Like Baltimore will have Like ten blocks With not anyone Living on it And those sidewalks Are like <laughs> perfect But Richmond you got the fan sidewalks Are all like oh, Candleering into the sky I know Maybe it's the soil, or I don't know. I did hear a rumor, or no, sorry, it wasn't a rumor. A couple years ago, they finally decided to impose a standard on how they were going to repair the streets when they were fixing them. They were going to have a standard now. I didn't know they didn't have one before, like.
1: I believe it, though. Like, I
0: couldn't believe it when I heard that. I was just like, well, what were you just add a couple more inches above the hole of asphalt. You know, like...
1: Oh, who needs an engineer? We're just going to throw down some more asphalt. That's what they did in Oregon Hill. They contacted that to the cheapest... I'm sure it was the cheapest company they could get or a friend of the city planner from Baltimore. They didn't even get local people to do this local job. They brought someone from Baltimore. So just throw some more asphalt down on Oregon Hill so that there's this much room now between the street and and the sidewalk. And you can imagine what happens when it rains.
0: I don't understand their contract. I mean, the guys that just... They've, for long carry. They've been ripping up all the telephone poles and replacing them, and they contracted out some company from New Jersey. I was really like New Jersey, like that's the closest you could go. There's no one around here that needs that contract.
1: I'm sure it's, you know, it's. I'm sure every city government is quite corrupt, but I think Richmond is really up there as far as that goes. I'm sure it's a friend of somebody.
0: Yeah. And that concludes part five of our six-part interview with Greta. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on April 5th, 2014. things. This is part six of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. Enjoy. Um, so, Brocky. Mm-hmm.
1: Dave Brocky, I knew him, I was actually at the first war show. And my boyfriend at the time, Dewey, became the second Guar guitarist. Um, And I'm actually the one that came up with the name Flatus Maximus, just for the record. I named him that. Um, Guar and... Well, Guar was... Rocky was much more than Guar. Um, Guar was a wonderful expression of his vision and, you know, his vision and that of the group that was working with him. But Rocky was so much... Rocky was just so much bigger than life in every way. Huge thinker, a huge talker, loud voice, big presence, always busy, always thinking, just a a real genius. And I mean that unironically and most seriously.
0: Yeah, I I had heard Guar when I was a kid. I think it was like the Scum Dogs of the Universe record or something. And I thought it was like, oh, that's crazy, you know, like they're dressed up. Uh And it wasn't until I had a more better understanding of um, art that I realized what they were doing like that that's just kind of insane Mm -hmm. to do as Mm a like we're gonna come as these characters and just do this like it's a super it might seem stupid or something like this to like my parents when they would look at it they'd be like oh look at this you know whatever um but it was, like, super inventive Because it's, like, you get to kind of, like, play with that whole, like, rock star ego thing mm-hmm. Like, you can lampoon the hell out of that You can, um, like, you don't have to worry about, like, ethics, really Because you're kind of, like, in this other world, right. you know Like, you can lampoon you an artist,
1: you can get away with all kinds of yeah. stuff
0: Yeah, it, it's just a kind of a genius approach to, like, being in a rock band Like, the whole, just the idea of the rock band You're lampooning that, too, kind of, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. So, like, when I think about it more, I'm just, like Wow, like, and this was something I realized a few years ago. It's almost at, like, that crass level of, like, where someone has kind of, like, hit kind of a new way of operating, at least in terms of how they were, like, kind of setting up a way for, like, doing big, like, attack the government with your DIY records kind of deal. Like, they kind of did that in a way that not many other people had really done.
1: Yeah, actually, they were very successful in that their legacy lives on.
0: Yeah. I had the fortunate um, I worked at a recording studio for a little while and uh, I started a mastering studio and he had done one of the Dave Brocky Experience records and so I was like me and uh, their producer I think Adam Adam Green Adam Green yeah um, and we were just sitting there working and the thing that struck me about Dave is I had just taken these pictures um, that I was, was putting up for the studio website because it was kind of a new studio mm-hmm. and he was like "Yo, yeah, didn't you mean just you need them scanned he's like scanning stuff in the uh. kitchen and I was like I mean, if, you, if you want And he's like Nah no, dude I'll scan him for you So he's like just I'm masking regular uh-huh, record He's like uh-huh. scanning my photos in I was just like that's, that's That just... sounds like
1: him though I still kind of can't I didn't see him Every day or anything So I kind of still can't It hasn't sunk in for me That he's gone Yeah Because I haven't You know physically missed him From some place that I normally Would see him But he's definitely Left a giant hole in Richmond
0: So that was someone That you'd known for a while Yeah
1: yeah I mean we weren't super close But we knew each other yeah, For a long time I was always happy to see him
0: You say it's not really Kicked in yet have you lost people
1: like that before? Um, yeah, actually just a couple weeks before Brocky passed, one of my drag queen friends who was a singer that I used to play in her, back when he was, she was a he at the time, and, oh, somebody didn't see the red light. (laughs) Uh, I used to work for a a singer named Temptress who was a guy who would dress up in a a dress and and sing, and he actually later actually became a woman and lived as a woman, and then he recently died, and I, felt very really sad about that because I didn't get a chance to really see him much in the last see her last in the last few years. But you know I'm also very like I said I'm a realist and I understand that we all die and the best we can hope for I think is to just cram as much living as we possibly can into the space that we whatever amount of time it turns out that we have. Yeah. And you know Brocky lived enough for 10 lifetimes. Yeah. I feel like if I die tomorrow I'm still I'm still good I'm ahead of the game because I probably have lived enough for Two or maybe three lifetimes, you know, with all the traveling and adventures. So it's not, I'm not going to be too sad. For stuff or any kind of, uh, because
0: you've basically been this punk rock person for a very long time now, not to make you feel old. That's it's right, fine, I am old. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you still, like a, a buddy of mine, we were kind of talking about, we're both in our mid 30s and we're, I think the 30s are that age where you start, like, you're at a point where, like, society really has this expectation of yeah, you.
1: Yeah. Now shit or get off the pot, man. Yeah. You're going to so get married or what?
0: You're either the awesomest person, I mean, not the awesomest person in the world, but you're either a really awesome person for still doing what you're doing, or Or
1: loser. you're a big loser. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you still feel that, that that pull between those two things?
1: Very occasionally. Um, however, I have found something that really helps is to get rid of the TV and never read a magazine or a newspaper. Because once you stop comparing yourself to the rest of what mid midstream, you know, mainstream society seems to expect everyone to be, then you feel a lot better about yourself.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's true. I, I, unfortunately, I have a chance to go watch a matlock right now. <laughs> um,
1: well, that's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, that's true because, I mean, you know, the magazine thing might actually even be... Um, well, no. because I mean, mainstream Magazine is course set up. But drug ads, I think, are, like, the biggest uh-huh. drug and beauty ads. Yes. Because the drug ads, they're just, like, even though they're not telling you there's nothing wrong with you, just that... They're saying. Fucking that, happy people, like... Yeah. Being normal through grass and shit like that. Like, I think it's just, like, this... I don't know. It's, like, setting an image of if everyone showed you a red car, like, every car you saw was red. Uh-huh. And then you looked down your driveway and yours was blue. You'd kind of just feel like yours yeah. wasn't a real car. Right. You know?
1: Right. Yeah, so if you take Chantix or whatever, you too could be wearing a white <laughs> suit and laughing in a salad. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Well, closing up, um, this has been great, by the way. This is, I think this has been really interesting. Um, where do you see yourself? In the future, like what's what's what, wh- where's your passion right now? Going through,
1: I don't think too far in advance, and I never have been able to, unfortunately. Um, but I would like to relocate to Berlin, Germany. Really, it is Berlin as if Richmond had a clue. Really, essentially, it's got working <laughs> working bicycle lanes with even their own little um, little stoplights. It's got public transportation, light rail, and bus that actually works. It's got health healthy organic food in every corner deli, and everything is closed on Sunday because you're expected to spend some time with your family and hang out you can sit in the park with a, with a beer in your hand and no one's going to freak the fuck out because you're a grown ass adult and you're capable of taking care of yourself and uh, it's weird I feel like I have more personal freedoms in former Nazi Germany than I do here in the States
0: yeah, so, it's not surprising so really. I would
1: like to my long term plan would be to move to Berlin if I can
0: and you get health care right? and,
1: and health care yeah so it's a lot of things. I mean, my house in Richmond is the only thing that I own. So if I sell that and buy an apartment in Berlin and then it goes bad, I'm really going to be screwed. So I have to think really carefully about how it's going to work.
0: How's the weather there?
1: It's dismal. It's, like it's on the same latitude as New York City, so winter is like nine months long. And that's wow. what I'm scared of.
0: I heard something. My, my uncle lives in um, right outside D.C. Mm-hmm. He was telling me that all the uh, dignitaries get paid hazardous duty. Like, yeah. if it's because of the climate of D.C. Really? It's so hot. Like if they're from like Italy or that something like, like that. That sounds like bullshit. No, wow. seriously. Like like if they're from Europe, yeah. they get paid more money for being in that freaking climate because of the humidity.
1: They should get paid more for drinking the tap water in <laughs> D.C. It's an embarrassment. It's an insult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you had a lot of it or something?
1: My aunt used to live in D.C. and she died of bladder cancer, and I'm pretty sure it's because she drank the water there.
0: Really? Yeah, it's really undrinkable and terrible. Ooh.
1: Considering it's the capital of our entire nation, it should be the capital of the world, according to some people.
0: Yeah, well, you I can't mean, even have
1: drinkable water. It's, DC's
0: always had those amazing issues. Yes. Just yeah. It's so weird because it's
1: it's supposed to be it's,
0: it. it's
1: supposed it's to America. be the representative town of Americans, but it's on such a scale that a human being can't even feel comfortable there.
0: Well, in that case, I mean, if you think about it like that, if it, rather than the crown jewel of America, if you think about it as representative of America, I'd say they're doing a great job then.
1: Well, actually, maybe. <laughs>
0: well, thanks a lot for doing this You interview.
1: are so welcome. It's been my pleasure.
0: And that concludes part six of our six-part interview with Greta Brinkman. I'd like to thank Greta for taking the time to talk with me, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on April 5th, 2014. Thanks for listening.